Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of the Pandemonium podcast, sponsored by the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. Today, we're incredibly honored to have Congresswoman Madeline Dean and her son Harry on the podcast to share a touching story about addiction and how the opioid crisis has affected their family. Representative Dean has fought hard to introduce and support legislation to further combat the opioid epidemic and end the stigma surrounding those suffering with addiction. Representative Dean was born and raised in Glenside, Pennsylvania, and completed her undergraduate studies at LaSalle University in Philadelphia and earned her law degree at Delaware Law School of Widener University. Representative Dean got her start in politics soon after graduating from high school, when at age 18, she was elected to serve as a local committee person. Since then, she has been the Abington Township Commissioner. She has served in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and finally the U.S. House of Representatives. Her son, Harry, who is currently a regional resource director for care and treatment centers, shares with us his story of alcohol and opioid addiction and his road to recovery. Harry and his mother decided to co-author two books, one entitled Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son, and a children's illustrated book entitled You Were Always Loved. Both of them will be published in February of 2021, and I'll put the link for how to find the book in the show notes. Thank you for everyone who has listened and supported the show, and don't forget to share it with your friends. We hope to spread the word to as many people as possible. And without further ado, Congresswoman Madeline Dean and her son, Harry Kunin. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Pandemonium Podcast. This is episode 5, and today we are incredibly honored to have two very exciting guests. First, we have Congresswoman Madeline Dean. She is a representative for Pennsylvania's 4th Congressional District and has worked tirelessly on prioritizing social issues such as addiction, access to health care, and criminal justice reform. We also have her son, Harry, who is currently Regional Resource Director for Care and Treatment Centers and the co-author of two incredible books, which we'll talk about soon. Welcome to you both. It's such an incredible honor to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Alongside us today, we also have the president of the Rothman Institute Foundation for Opioid Research and Education, Dr. Asif Ilyas. Welcome, Dr. Ilyas. Kaim, thank you very much. And let me just take a moment also to, to thank our two guests today, uh, Representative Madeline Dean, who we'll, we'll call Matt, as she, as she always asks us to do so, and, and her son, Harry. Harry, thank you uh, for being here as well. I, I couldn't, uh, we couldn't ask for a better uh, topic to discuss and people to discuss it with kind of focusing on uh, our work and just to kind of share with everyone about the, the Rothman Opioid Foundation. You know, this is a, a new 501c3 based out of southeastern Pennsylvania, focusing on um, strategies to combat the opioid epidemic in America. Um, we're, we're doing this through education, we're doing this through research, and we're doing this through advocacy. Um, and in that in that vein, we're trying to highlight different things sometimes policy positions, sometimes research, sometimes uh, uh, current events, sometimes uh, crises, and, and, and the leaders and the, and the writers and the researchers involved in them. So uh, you guys are both not only, Matt, not, not only are you our legislator uh, personally, as well as for the, uh, uh, in the region of, of the foundation, but you're also a leader in this field and Harry, so are you. So we're really lucky to have both of you. Well, I wanna say thank you, uh, Kayam, for setting this up and uh, doctor, uh, I'll call you Asif, if that's all right. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Harry and I are delighted to join you and really excited uh, that Rothman has uh, begun the Opioid Foundation uh, to help educate and spread the word uh, about addiction and recovery and prevention uh, and best practices and all the rest. So it's really our honor to be with you. To echo, it's it's really a pleasure to 
be having this conversation on you know a topic that I know Matt and I care so so deeply about. So thank you. Of course, and one of the reasons we're so glad to have you both on the podcast today is because you have an incredible story to tell regarding addiction and recovery. Would either of you feel comfortable sharing that story first? Yeah. So I mean, you know, addiction, uh, you know, opioids specifically are something that have impacted me personally. It's you know, growing up, it's not something I ever anticipated. Uh, you know, in terms of how my life would turn out, and you know, I had this vision, and I grew up in a wonderful home. You know, I, di- I didn't anticipate that substance use disorder and opiate abuse would be a challenge that I struggled with. But, you know, what started for me is just very seemingly normal behaviors of, you know, experimenting a little bit in high school really quickly unraveled. Um, you know, and before I was introduced to opioids, I found myself, um, you know, struggling with substance use disorder with a variety of different substances. But for me, once um, I was introduced to opioids, everything just went downhill really, really fast. They were accessible. They were everywhere. I personally was never prescribed them. It didn't come through a doctor. They came through friends. They came through drug dealers, but, but they were everywhere. You know, I was in college at LaSalle University and between parties and wherever I went, they were easy to come by. It really is an incredible story. Mad, if I could just ask you, how was it like finding out that someone in your family was suffering with this addiction? And how long did it take you to find out? Well, and what our story reveals is it took me a long time to figure it out. I knew there was something wrong in our home. I knew there was something wrong with Harry, but uh, it took me years, literally, to figure it out. And, you know, we're talking years that it's junior high, experimenting with alcohol. Uh, It's the beginning of high school uh, and other experimentation. Uh, But I saw Harry unraveling this bright, enthusiastic, um, life of a room kind of a guy in high school slipped into an affect that was incredibly flat. He looked sickly. Uh, He was sickly. Uh, He was no longer thriving person who bounded into a high school had to be dragged across a finish line in the end. Uh, but strangely, it, it was difficult to figure it out. And he and I were at each other. I drug tested him, I bet a half a dozen times at least. Uh, and I think the pattern in our home was often the same, uh, that I never saw Harry come in drunk, for example. Uh, I didn't necessarily see him high, but I knew his affect looked wrong or his eyes looked bad. Um, but Um, we would be at each other to a boiling point. He would recognize I was within hours of testing him and he would try everything in his power to uh, use every trick in the book to try to beat it. Uh, And so this went on for quite a few years and it was a very sad story, frankly. Uh, I I described it as believing there was a a fire in the walls of our house and I was the only one who knew it. Um, I had some story uh, knowledge about addiction, uh, but until I figured it out, And the way I figured it out was uh, Harry stole money from us. Uh, That that was the recognition in me that this absolutely, I had said all along, I believed it was drugs uh, and I confronted him with it. If I could just make a comment, Matt. So yeah, a couple of things that Harry said uh, jumped out at me right away. One was, um, you know, he, 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 
he was wasn't anticipating um you know being you know falling susceptible to substance abuse and and access to it was 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 relatively easy one of the things that we've we've learned and we've seen with uh the opioid crisis or opioid epidemic is the ubiquitous nature of it it's not like certain um, substance abuse conditions that are prone to a certain, certain demographic area or socioeconomic strata. We've seen with the opioid epidemic, it's actually quite broad in terms of who is potentially vulnerable to it. So that's not what Harry said is actually very telling. Um, and the other thing I just want to comment on, as he mentioned, that he, he didn't get it from prescription opioids. It's just worth mentioning that through our research and through other research, there are other uh, uh, research that's been out previously, we find that about 70% of folks who um, fall into opioid uh, addiction, get it from uh, physicians. Either of that 70%, 20% are sort of their own physicians, and usually the other 50% are from uh, the prescription opioids of their friends and family's physicians, if that makes sense. So usually 70% of it comes from there, and then 20, 30% come through other other means, typically sales uh, or what Interesting. have you. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the way it came to our house. And Harry, your mother had just talked to us about her experience with finding out about this addiction that you had suffered from. What exactly did you feel was the sign that you realized that there was a problem here? And what steps did you take for recovery? So the first um, sign to me that there could be a problem was when I first started to experience withdrawal. Um, so just the physical symptoms of that, you know, made me start to realize that there's something bigger here. And it, you know, really exacerbated the cycle of once I was sick, I had to use so that I didn't feel that way. Um, so that was sort of my earliest warning sign that it was getting beyond just, you know, something that I did to party or take the edge off. It was something that I was really tied to. Um, you know, I tried a lot of different ways to stop on my own. I tried weaning myself off. I tried you know, substituting for different substances. And really the, you know, the biggest moment for me in my personal experience with this was when I was 20 years old, I found out that a girl that I was dating was pregnant and I was going to become a father. And for me at that time, I was fully caught in the grip of the addiction, but I had a moment of hope, right? I, I had a good father growing up. I had this image of who I wanted to be, the type of father I could and should be. And I knew at that moment that drugs were not in that picture. Um, so I had this moment of optimism and, and I really thought that I could try to, to stop, you know, with this newfound willpower and motivation and this external thing, um, I was going to be able to stop using. And I found that very quickly after I was able to put together you know, in hindsight, it's blurry, but a week, maybe two weeks, maybe five days, right before my daughter was born, where I didn't use. I had tapered myself down and I was abstinent from anything for a couple of days. But as soon as my daughter was born, I immediately texted my network of friends who were all drug dealers and said we needed to celebrate and I used it again. Um, and immediately was hooked, you know, then I tried again and I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. I couldn't get off of it. And everything that I had tried was failing. And I realized that 
no matter how badly I wanted to stop, I was incapable on my own. I was just completely unable to stop. I had started buying Suboxone off the street um, and trying to use that, you know, because I had, with my limited knowledge, I had heard of friends who were, you know, prescribed that. And I thought that might be a better alternative, but I was unable to, um, you know, stop what I was doing. And it was just an emotionally crushing experience having this new baby, um, knowing what I wanted to be, but at the same time, you know, when those withdrawals came and it was late at night and, you know, I needed to be up with the baby because she was crying and, and I felt like I had to keep using. I had to take another just to be able to be well enough so that I could care for her. Um, and really, you know, for me, it was a year of that. I entered treatment uh, four days after my daughter's first birthday. So for that entire year, that's what it was. It was this cycle of just not being able to stop. So if I could ask a question to each of you, so uh, Matt and then Harry. So Matt, as, as a family member, as, as, as a mother, what are some, and so for our listeners, what are some of the signs that you saw that um, you know, made you suspicious initially? And you talked a little bit about it, but if you could expand, it made you suspicious initially. Um, and, um, that, and, and what, what are some of the tells, if you will? And then Harry, you, you clearly had some awareness um, of what was going on, right? So, and particularly at the, around the birth of your daughter, I think it was a, it was a moment, moment of inflection, if I'm understanding you. And then, so you, you try to pull away on your own. What were, what resources were, were available to you or not available to you at, at the time? So I'd love to hear about uh, both of those things. So Matt, if you want to go first and then Harry. Well, I, and uh, looking back, uh, I can picture us and, and you would say, boy, it was obvious he was in decline, but because it crept up day by day and the personality change, the change of friends, the change of affect, the change of habit was slow and withering. Uh, I, I, I knew something was wrong and I had a, a primitive, I think, notion of addiction, but I didn't know what addictive behavior really looked like. And I have to admit to you, until we wrote this book and we wrote it separately, we outlined it together, but wrote it separately, until I read Harry's chapters, I didn't know what he was going through. And this is six, seven years after he was into long-term recovery. Uh, so it was a change of friends. The friends that he was friendly with forever. And as I say, he's a very person-oriented person. He, he's uh, more, one has more friends than the other kids have. Um, those friends started to ebb away and new friends came in. And I couldn't even get eye contact from those friends. And Harry's affect looked bad. As I said, I never really saw him drunk. You would have thought, well, through high school, he'd be partying and I would have seen him drunk or high, it wasn't really that. He hid it very, very well, but he was sickly. Um, he was vomiting at the end, um, the extraordinary, how many, many months, Harry, uh, were you going through that vomiting uh, behavior, weight loss, color was wrong. Uh, I didn't realize it, but even his sound, the way he sounded had changed. I only recognized that after he got into recovery. Uh, he just became a flatter, paler, changed person 
whose circle of friends uh, were no longer um, reachable, uh, and the sickness. He had been sick as a baby with an ulcer-like condition, literally was prescribed Tagamet, persistent vomiting, uh, and he got into a persistent vomiting. I took him to doctors to be tested to see had that condition returned. So in some ways, I knew I was onto something, and in some ways, I was living in a deception that maybe there was some other explanation for his failings. Harry? In, in terms of the resources or supports that were available to me, you know, it's kind of shocking in hindsight, especially just with what I do as a career now and working, you know, as a resource director. So I work throughout the state of New Jersey and, uh, you know, point families and patients in the direction of resources to address these exact issues. Um, but at the time, you know, I know that my family was there, um, but there was a great deal of fear about exposing what was going on to them. Um, you know, there was this, I think the shame and the stigma and everything that goes along with an addict and what I thought of, what I thought rehab was, um, you know, I just didn't think that was something that was realistic for me. But I had no sense of so many of the other supports that are out there, the resources that are out there, just, you know, everything from a therapist to a 12-step meeting to, you know, anything in between. To me, that was just not something that came to mind. Um, I think part of that was I wasn't exposed to anybody that I was aware of that was in recovery, you know, so I didn't know of anyone or look to where I could find, hey, this person has found a path. Um, you know, what did they do? What did they reach out for? And the other thing, you know, that I found was, especially when I was in college and at other times in high school, I was finding myself getting in trouble, um, you know, as a direct result of the way that I was living and the drug abuse and, and all of those things. But when it came down to it, it, I always found myself in more of a disciplinary situation than um, a situation where somebody recognized that, hey, maybe there's something else going on here and let's try to point Harry towards, you know, some resources that might address a substance use or some other underlying mental health concern because the behaviors were there but it was always more disciplinary focused. So, so Harry, you know, when we do this work in the foundation, I always divide it broadly into two categories. Well, let me, let me take a step back. So when you look at the opioid crisis in terms of managing it, there, there's a way two parts of it. There's many more, but from a physician and medical perspective, there's two parts of it. One is the treatment side, one is the prevention side. So most of our work in the foundation is focusing more on the prevention side, which is a little bit different, but great to discuss here, is how do we minimize opioid dissemination to the community? How do we avoid opioid sensitization of patients and community members? How do we use pain management strategies that can avoid opioids so people don't even have to be exposed to it? We don't have to prescribe it so they don't have to get into the community to get into the hands of people who are gonna sell them, et cetera, right? So that's all on the prevention side. The treatment side is a whole huge other area. And uh, um, that's the area I think really you, you now professionally work in. And one of the things that I found in this space is that for someone is, is, is identifying a resource. So first identifying that they have a problem, 
and then finding someone who can help them get the resources in a non-judgmental and a practical way. That's been my observation. And sometimes it's a family member, but sometimes, like you said, it's not because you're embarrassed by it. So you don't want to go to family. And then sometimes you find yourself in a disciplinary situation, but really you need someone to kind of say, this, this person has a problem, take them to a place and say, this is where you need to be. And then have the resources to avail yourself of that. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, just to touch briefly on the prevention and sort of that in between, right? Because before, you know, maybe where prevention misses, but to help connect people more towards the treatment, I think, you know, what you're doing here with this podcast and just shining a light on this as an issue, um, you know, is something that I think is so important because for so many people like me, when I was there, it was a hopeless spot, you know, and it felt then, um, and it wasn't that long ago, but it was, you know, 2010, 2012, in that, in that range, it just felt like something that wasn't talked about, um, you know, and it felt like it was not, it didn't have the spotlight on it that there is today. So I think that's a positive, you know, overall for the stigma, overall for the disease and, and, and the way that it's viewed, you know, there's a lot more work to do there. But I think in terms of, you know, whether it's, a school counselor, whether it's, um, you know, a family member or a friend, um, to have somebody to talk to, right? Because, you know, I found myself the only person that I could, that I was telling that I had this problem was my infant daughter, you know, because I had to get it off of my chest, but I would talk to her at night knowing that she couldn't comprehend and she couldn't judge me. Um, you know, but I think if we have more people in the community that we can maybe open up to about it, and I think the more people that are talking about it, sharing experiences and their own personal stories, whether that's as, you know, the person affected um, directly or a family member, you know, having those people to connect with and talk about it, that's the way to open the door to treatment. Um, because for me, like I said, you know, I had a couple friends that went into treatment when I was caught up in my addiction and, and none of them, you know, they went because of legal reasons. They went because their parents forced them. They came out and, and they weren't taking it seriously. Um, so I had never seen someone be successful. Um, so I, I just didn't, I didn't see that as a path for me. Um, and I think more so as my mom was getting into politics and my dad was in business you know, I just, I looked at the shame that it would bring to them, you know, and I, in, in hindsight, now the way that I view it as a disease is completely different. And I think treatment is something that, you know, should be just not at all viewed in the, in that way. But, you know, I think connecting people through, it has to come down to trust. You know, it, you have to be able to trust that you're not going to be, like you said, judged or looked at and, and feel more shame than you already feel. Um, so whoever that may be. So uh, just to follow up on that, um, I think it's a really important point. I just wanna echo what you said, Harry, because the last administration, Surgeon Gen General uh, Vivek Murthy, um, he had actually, I wanna say this is 2015 or 20, 2015, maybe even 14. Um, I think it's 2015. He, he put out a letter to all physicians 
medical providers um, towards the end of his term saying, speaking sp directly to the opioid epidemic and, and, and substance abuse uh, crisis across America. And he, he said just that, that we need to embrace this problem um, as a disease and not as a personality flaw or fallacy um, and identify it early in individuals not judge it, not ignore it, not turn a blind eye to it and pursue treatment early um, so that it can be dealt with in, in, a, in a medical manner um, and in a more objective manner. And so there, there is, there, that speaks to your point, I think, Harry, where uh, there is a stigma associated with it uh, that's, that's quite obvious. But I think if we look at it from a medical perspective, we can minimize that a bit and, 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 and get treatment where and quickly to those who need it. That was one of the most sort of sad and frustrating things for PJ, for uh, his dad and for me. Um, certainly we were at each other and I was trying to figure out what was going on. I was also trying to support him in, in his college work or whatever he was doing. Um, but I remember the day that we confronted Harry with what we, we knew to be the truth uh, and he agreed to get help. Both your dad and I said, you know, why, why didn't you feel that you could come to us? Um, you know, so that's, you know, I think as much as uh, we were at each other, you knew that you had a support system that was there, but there was a, a tremendous gap. Uh, and I remember one of your answers was, there just doesn't ever seem to be a good time. You know, it's Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, you're running for office, daddy's busy with work, the baby's being born, it's a birthday. Uh, and then the truth is there is no good time. The good time is just, just say it, raise your hand and ask for help. But that's a gap that hopefully your foundation will begin to um, begin to fill and give people the chance to open up and say, I need to trust somebody with the problem I'm suffering with. And one of the ways in, in which you're doing that is you guys are being proactive by telling that story and ending that stigma. So it seems like you guys are publishing a book together. Is that correct? That's coming out in February? Yes. Um, we're very excited. Uh, we're publishing a book. It is entitled Under Our Roof. Uh, Penguin Random House uh, is the one who took the greatest interest in it and, and encouraged us and brought us a terrific editor to help us tell our story. And it's a side-by-side -side telling of those eight or almost 10 years of him as a very young boy uh, experimenting and slipping into active addiction. And me, uh, as I was teaching and then wanting to pursue uh, a career in politics, but all the while being a mom and, and wife and other things, trying to figure out what was going on with Harry. Uh, we, we wrote it separately, um, sort of side by side. And then the editor dovetails it together so that literally my part of the story is in my font and my voice and his part of the story within the chapter shifts to his font and his voice. Uh, and and um, we did it because we thought maybe, just maybe somebody else could see themselves in us in our stumbles, in my ignorance, uh, in, his, uh, in his struggles, in his manipulation and, and, and all of it. If, if we could give somebody hope, uh, help some other families, it would be pretty neat. I'm sure this must have brought a lot of emotion to the story as well when you were reading both sides of the story and, and reliving it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that must have been very hard for you guys. 
Thank you, first of all, for doing that. And, and Harry, thank you for spending the, the time post-recovery to help others. It seems like right now you're working at a recovery center and, and promoting that message. So both of you guys are taking your words to actions, which is which is great. Uh, Matt, could you talk about the timeline in which you found out relative to your work in uh, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and the Federal House of Representatives? Uh how how did that influence your decision to go into politics in general and and the bills that you've supported in that regard? Well, I have to admit, I, I, I cared about mental health and addiction uh, from a distance um, because of my father's work uh, previously in the pharmaceutical industry and, and working um, to end stigma around mental illness. Uh, but at the time of Harry and my um, journey, uh, I was uh, teaching at LaSalle University when we were trying to, when I was trying to figure this all out and Harry was uh, going so sadly into the grips of the disease. Uh, but I had a notion in my mind that once all the kids were up and out, I was going to run for public office. So I literally had begun in 2011. Uh, I ran for public office. That's the year his baby daughter was born. Uh, and uh, I ran for first public office and won a township commissioner race. Then very quickly, within a couple of months, I ran for uh, a state house seat that was vacated by Josh Shapiro, and I won that. So I was serving, I was in a brand new piece of a term for the state house, the Pennsylvania state house. Uh, and it was strange, but right there, I was faced with what Pennsylvania was growing uh, to understand, which is um, the opioid crisis across the state. So I was living it at home, at, but not really fully understanding it, uh, learning more about it uh, in terms of a statewide crisis and the trafficking of opioids and heroin uh, and then fentanyl and, and the other synthetics. Uh, and then um, and then 2012, when, when Harry went into recovery, October 30th, I was literally six days from uh, my next election. So we were right in the thick of it. What it did do, and, and I was cautious, I will say, I was active in talking about addiction and in trying to legislate at the state level in the area, but I was very cautious to protect Harry, to protect us, uh, to protect his recovery, um, uh, maybe not ready to shine a light on what our family had gone through, uh, maybe not ready to shed the stigma. Uh, but also waiting for the time when I thought Harry was very stable and, and, and doing well in his long-term recovery. Uh, and so I served six and a half years in the House, became more vocal in terms of addiction and legislation around it in the House. And then um, with Harry, you were six years, I guess, into recovery when I ran for Congress. Uh, when I was running for State House, he really couldn't help me much. And what was really terrific was when I ran for Congress, he was fully engaged and really helpful. And so now in Congress, I've been able to introduce legislation, get legislation passed um, with the help of, of Harry's um, smarts and experience. Uh, so, and, and with his permission, of course, and, and now our, our uh, chance to write the book together, um, uh, it, it's been very fulfilling. But to your point, uh, painful. Um, there, there's, there's a chapter or two I still struggle to get through Harry, you know that, um, because I didn't fully understand the life of someone who is addicted. Um, so we're, we're, we're in a better place now uh, and had the chance to tell our story. And um, our editors said to us early on, uh, 
if this is not difficult for you, you're not writing well. Uh, you'll be doing sort of a dear diary. Uh, so dig in. He would force us to dig in and think harder about really what was I thinking or really what was he thinking or experiencing. Harry, can you talk a bit about that? How was that experience with your mom running in, in Congress as well and uh, uh, writing the book and the emotions it brought up? Um, to, uh, to start with the book, I mean, it was challenging. You know, it was a difficult process, but it was ultimately just so rewarding. Um, you know, we started the book at, you know, maybe when I was six and a half um, or seven years roughly into recovery. Um, and although that much time had passed and so much trust had been rebuilt and, you know, our relationship was really strong, there was so much that was never spoken, that we never talked about, that was maybe glossed over, you know, for for whatever reason. Um, so the way that the book is broken out is it's really, um, you know, each chapter for the most part is kind of a, a key event along the way that we each wrote about it in our own perspective. Um, so I have my lived experience and that's what I wrote, but it wasn't until I read my mom's side to see what what she was really going through, what she really felt, how much it really impacted her. Um, those are things that I always thought about or, you know, made assumptions about, um, but to actually go through and read it and understand the impact that it had on my mom, my dad, my brothers, um, you know, was something that was difficult, but it, in the end, I think, has brought us much closer um, and given us both a better understanding of each other uh, and this process, you know, and how it's different for everyone who goes through it. My mom's version would be different from my dad's version. And to talk briefly just about, you know, my mom running for Congress and, and getting deeper into politics, um, I remember the day that I decided to go to treatment and, you know, it was a Tuesday. So it was just the week before that next election that she had in 2012. And the shame and just the way that I felt like this liability to her career, to her, her aspirations, um, was painful then, but six years later to be able to talk to her and help her and try to guide her. Um, but more than anything, just to learn from her as she went on this process and ran for Congress and you know was successful and won was something that was just remarkable to watch, you know, and as a family to have that opportunity to really you know, come full circle together, you know, to where we were so far apart those six years ago and now eight, you know, to be in that process as a family because running for Congress, you know, is, you know, it, it takes a big toll on the whole family. Everybody's invested and involved and, you know, to have everybody working so hard to help my mom after they had done so much to help me um, years before just, you know, was a, an amazing experience. Just a, just two quick comments, um, you know, Harry and, and Matt, you know, to to take this experience and then to turn it around and to do something positive with it is, is it says a lot about both of your characters, um, Harry, with the work that you do and Matt, with the work that you do, and in particular, at a political level, from from our perspective, from a, from a foundation perspective, from a research perspective, from an advocacy perspective, uh, for us, it's a it's a, a great um, asset to have someone like 
mad in her position because she really understands the issue, right? It's not a, it's not a, it's not an abstract. So many things I, I feel like when we talk to legislators, they don't understand it because why would they? I mean, there's plenty of things I, I don't have any idea about. If someone talked to me about, you know, trade of, of soybeans, I wouldn't know what they're talking about, for example. And so, and then we try to, and that group tries to educate that legislator on that issue. But when there's a legislator who really understands an issue, is em, uh, empathetic and, and can relate to that issue, it makes her a much makes him or her a much stronger advocate uh, for that. And and Matt, you've 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 demonstrated that with the work that you've done so far. And uh, and I think Kyle's going to talk a little bit about some of the work you've done and what yeah, you hope to um, continue to do. Before before I get there, Harry, you had spoken about your relationship with your daughter. Have you approached this topic with her? I, I'm not sure how old she is just yet, but is this is the relationship first of all better between you guys? And have you do you plan on approaching this topic with her in a specific way? Yes. So my daughter is nine now and we have the most amazing relationship today. Um, You know, she is my best friend. I've got another, you know, one-year-old son also. So can't give, you know, special treatment. My son also, but you know, my daughter, you know, I had her very young. Um, You know, I was young and, and we went through a lot together, whether she knows it or not, you know, and it's been something that even for me, you know, where this has been such a major part of my life, you know, both substance use and recovery, working in the field that I work in now, it's not easy to have that conversation. You know, we've had limited sort of here and there. I don't want to overwhelm her. Um, You know, so something that my mom and I did to help not just us, but hopefully help some other people is we also have another book coming out um, at the same time this February called You Are Always Loved. So in this book we co-wrote, it's a children's picture book. It doesn't use any of the language specifically um, dealing with substance use disorder or recovery, but it talks about love. It talks about hope and it talks about, you know, some difficult moments, you know, abandonment and things like that. And, you know, for me, this is such an exciting project to be able to use that to help kind of talk about it more with my daughter, because she was one, you know, so she won't have any memory of me in active addiction. Um, And I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, that has completely changed the course of my life. You know, I wouldn't be working in this field, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for that lived experience. Um, So to answer your question quickly, we've had very limited conversations about it still. And, you know, it's something that I'm always, you know, looking for others and and suggestions on, you know, how do you broach that subject? Um, Because it's difficult. You know, there's a lot of people that are in in more complicated situations where a parent may still be struggling um, and it may be more apparent, but for my daughter, you know, we do small bits and pieces here and there. Something I wanted to say is you, you can see how much, and, and doctor, I'm, I'm sure you know this from your own experience that uh, anybody struggling with a health issue uh, and in particular, a mental health issue, it, it is a family dynamic. Uh, a very dear friend of mine used to use the analogy of a mobile, that a family is like a beautiful mobile spinning around. And when one spins far out of orbit, 
the whole mobile sort of tries to compensate and chase that, that one that's flying away. Uh, and that's what it felt like in our house. Uh, and what, uh, what the story taught me and really Harry taught me is uh, to prize that because we did have the chance to, to heal uh, and to him to stay in long-term recovery and for us to come back into what I think is an even better pattern, strangely. I, I would not have wished this experience on any family. And I know many families have different outcomes that are just so tragic, sad, great losses. We know, sadly, many families who have suffered great losses. Um, but that it is, it's not, this disease is not something that operates alone. It is within a family. Uh, and, and the family dynamic can absolutely, um, when educated about it, learning about it, uh, and with an open heart, um, can wind up being a stronger family unit in the end. And just to add to that, um, as Dr. Elias was saying before, Mad, we've seen your incredible accomplishments in the house, uh, working with the bipartisan freshman working group on addiction, as well as some of the bills you supported and introduced, like the Fairness in Orphan Drug uh, Exclusivity Act, the uh, N-Stigma Act, and others. Uh, do we have anything to be excited for in the future? Anything coming down the pipeline? Well, thanks for asking. I'm very excited uh, that uh, the um, uh, recently passed, the, the House passed the Fairness in Orphan Drug Pricing Act. Now you know we're coming to the end of a session. And so without some extraordinary speed in the Senate this week, uh, it's likely not to pass, but we will reintroduce it. And I think that will be an important bill uh, to make uh, medication-assisted uh, treatment uh, more available, more affordable, uh, more prevalent, uh, and more successful. So we're going we're gonna to reintroduce that. Uh, we have the More Savings Act. That's going to be, I'm going to reintroduce that in the new session. And Harry has actually helped me and chatted with my legislative team to talk about what might be a package of bills around addiction, uh, prevention, addiction, the disease, and recovery uh, that might be effective. So we have the More Savings Act, which we will reintroduce sort of as the flagship, which would eliminate the cost sharing, the co-pays, the deductibles. It would be based on a, a Medicare demonstration program. So I'm excited about that because we've seen, and Harry, you and your profession know, uh, that the barriers are often cost, uh, coverage, cost, availability uh, of beds uh, and treatment and therapies, et cetera. We also have the End Stigma Act. Uh, because so much of what we were doing uh, when we were discovering what was going on with Harry happened, ha happened on a college campus where I was teaching and he was trying to be a student, I thought so much of it should speak to what happens in that phase of life. Uh, so we have the uh, End Stigma Act, which would be a, a grant, it would establish a grant program for uh, colleges, institutions of higher learning uh, to try to educate folks in terms of stigma. I guess that's really entirely why we're talking about this in the way that we are talking about it. I believe that if we could, if we could clamp down, tamp down, begin uh, the ending of a stigma uh, for the person who is called an addict, and I'm somebody who's a lover of words, but I know that's a pretty harsh word to say my son is an addict. That's hard to, to take. Uh, so if we can get past that and, and end the stigma, then maybe we can, maybe that person who is the addict will trust other people and raise their hand and say, I need some help. Have you noticed that stigma amongst your colleagues 
in either Pennsylvania or in the federal level that you've worked to try to educate those people? Uh, I have, uh, but you know what? I have seen such a trend uh, toward understanding because literally each time I mention this story or our story or why I care about different legislation around addiction, um, I can't tell you the number of times people raise their hand and say, oh, uh, my family struggled with it. My niece struggled with it. Uh, my brother died from it. You know, I almost don't know any family that hasn't had some contact, certainly with mental illness, uh, but uh, more and more families, sadly, with addiction. And uh, doctor, you and I have talked recently about the numbers. The numbers are tragic. Um, uh, one recent study shows 77,000 people have died of overdose uh, in the 12 months from the spring of last year until the spring of this year. The pandemic um, certainly uh, taking its toll in many areas. So I'm finding fewer and fewer people, if, they, if they're critical of me for mentioning this, they're not telling me. More often people are raising their hand, uh, not out of judgment, but saying, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that book. I had a colleague say, uh, I have a person near and dear to me in trouble. Could I have an advanced copy of the book? Um, so people are asking for help. I, I would agree with that, Matt, uh, with my work uh, on the Hill in Harrisburg and to lesser extent in, in DC, that's been my observation as well. I think it, I think it speaks to the fairly ubiquitous nature of substance abuse and opioid abuse. And I think the greater awareness, the greater um, um, normalization of discussion of it as a more of a medical condition than a, than a stigmatism, I think, um, a stigma, I should say, uh, with, uh, is really, I think, central to that. And the numbers speak for themselves. Like you said, the numbers are damning. Um, and that's really what motivates us is, is, is that number. And you know, it's a preventable number. Right, that's the hard part, right? So, when it becomes a leading cause of death of young Americans, bypassing car accidents, and 130 Americans that are dying every day, um, you know, in the era of COVID, when we're so overwhelmed by that, and and not to take away of any of any of the the uh, the significance of the COVID pandemic, which none of us can escape right now, this has this is, has continued despite COVID pandemic and our, our data now is showing that there's there's gonna be an uptick during the COVID pandemic that we'll have a better sense of as we come out of it. But we're seeing an uptick. There was a, a brief decline, I think in 2018 was the first year where the, the number of deaths from opioid abuse did not climb year after year. There was actually a slight downtick, but then we've, we've jumped back onto the curve again. So if anything, 18 was just a moment of a glimmer of hope that, but the trend continues. Um, despite the work of, of many centers, despite the, the work of, of, of people like Harry, despite the research and, and what have you. So I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and even recently, I know that in uh, the house, I just wanna comment on a couple of things. So, so Matt, you helped us with a couple of bills uh, in, in Harrisburg that I think warrant attention. One was the PDMP, the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. That was about four or five years ago. Uh, that you were one of the co-signers of and, and Kime has done a lot of work uh, from a research perspective looking at the effects of that and we'll be publishing that soon. Um, that's been really helpful for us to be able to kind of see what, what people are taking. It's increased transparency, it's, it's decreased doctor shopping, it's decreased you know, uh, opioid prescription abuse uh, and um, has increased transparency significantly. And then the next one, uh, forgetting the ACT number, I think it's ACT 24, uh, but I could be wrong about that. That was about two years ago, which is the e-prescribing of opioids in Pennsylvania. 
that's been, I can tell you, although sometimes owners, because now you have to get online and put all that in rather than writing it out, it has, it has done a lot for us to um, decrease the amounts that we are prescribing more readily because it, it speaks to the problem that we as prescribers often have with opioids is that prior to that law, and, and this law is ubiquitous, some states still have the old way and a lot of states have the new way that Pennsylvania has where you have to now electronically send a prescription of opioids or a controlled substance to the pharmacy. Prior to that, you had to get an in-person prescription. So what that did is as a prescriber, you would often give more than what somebody needed because you don't, you don't know when that person will be able to get in front of you again to get that prescription. So it's inconvenient to come to the doctor to get a prescription. You, the doctor may not be available, maybe an off hour issue. So what do you do? You just give more, right? You just give a little bit more. And between not knowing what people were consuming and then overprescribing to avoid the inconvenience for both the patient and the doctor, to avoid the, the weekend call, the night call, to avoid having a patient suffer overprescribing, we, we, were, we were kind of inadvertently disseminating a high amount of opioids into the community. And our, our, our research has shown that, you know, typically um, uh, in, in the orthopedic community, we were overprescribing, again, I'll, I'll emphasize inadvertently, uh, 50 to 70% above what people needed. So for example, on average, one of the studies we published, we would prescribe on average uh, 30 pills and people would take on average eight to 10 pills. So what that would do would leave an excess of 20 pills. Now you multiply that out by how many surgeries, how many prescribers, how many patients, how many days, that number just keeps growing in terms of the amount of opioids that are disseminated. So one of the things we're trying to do is just decrease the dissemination of it. So there's less to have access to for folks to be able to sell and exchange and, and to be sensitized to and ultimately avoid becoming addicted to it. That's what we've been really trying to do. So I just want to acknowledge you for supporting those two bills and also the, the two bills right now that I'm aware of that I think passed the house was the, uh, the state opioid response act, which, is going, which I think is to get grants to the state to, to pursue kind of customized opioid legislation specific to the state. Cause every state has a little bit of a different dynamic in terms of this crisis. They're not all the same. And the other one was the fentanyl act, which is to, to curtail fentanyl um, transport. So just want to recognize those bills. And if I could add two things, I was thinking back um, to my days in Harrisburg. So thinking back maybe eight, 10 years. Uh, and uh, if you remember the debate on the floor of the house around uh, Narcan, uh, and the availabilities that uh, with a standing prescription, uh, both here at the county, Montgomery County, Valar Cush, uh, early on put a standing prescription for folks so they could walk right into their local uh, CVS, right, um, neighborhood pharmacy, uh, and without a prescription, say, I'd like to fill a prescription for Narcan to have it uh, to revive if it's self or loved one. Uh, I remember filling one for my state office uh, walking into my CVS after we had passed that. Um, it feels like we've come a long way and hopefully in some ways we have. Uh, obviously the tragic numbers aren't revealing that yet, but just in education and awareness, the argument on the floor of the house at the time that we passed that and we did pass it was so primitive. Uh, arguments, false arguments like, oh my goodness, you're just gonna give an addict false hope. Um, how many times are you gonna revive somebody? That was literally some of the questions that were asked, uh, horrifying uh, ignorance um, in those years. Uh, so I hope in some ways we've come a long way. The other thing that I'm excited and hopeful for, 
uh, is that you know we are on the edge of our seat trying to pass more relief for COVID. Um, we in the Democratic caucus and in the House have passed bills in May and October. They're going nowhere in the Senate. Negotiations are ongoing. I'm so excited because in this package, and I believe it's gonna make it, I don't wanna doom it, is $5 billion around opioids. Um, that was not in previous packages. We, well, we passed it in HEROES, but we have not gotten that kind of relief across. Um, so I'm hopeful that that is a really uh, significant sign uh, that uh, a recognition, a bipartisan recognition that we in government have a role to play to get resources out. Uh, so I hope by the end of this week, we will pass that legislation along with a whole lot of other resources uh, surrounding the pandemic. Yeah, again, I just echo, thank you. Thank you, Matt. I mean, that that is so helpful for, for the work that we're doing on the ground for the treatment centers, for the research centers, et cetera. Um, this issue, again, COVID is, no question the the issue of the day and the year and none of us would deny that but the the opioid crisis issue unfortunately is here to stay for for an extended period of time and i think it's going to take an extended effort uh with an all hands on deck approach uh through all the folks that are involved in this and broadly i look at that as uh, the public uh the medical community um the pharmaceutical industry and then, and then government. And I think with with all four groups, you know, in line, uh, I think that we can we can we can we can expect some positive change. It's really true. And to think we've come to this point where Henry's in that space too. It's really, uh, it's amazing. I'm I'm looking at uh, three folks here who have a servant's heart. So thank you for the extraordinary work you do. Um, as we get towards the end of our time, I'm sorry, you know, we're, we're limited here. It is an incredible story that could take hours, but I like to always end it on a call to action. And I usually delineate it into three different populations. And usually that goes the patients that we see, sometimes the people that are dealing with addiction and the legislators who need to hear this. And so, Harry, I'd love to start with you. Uh, you have done an incredible job of turning your story into helping others. And I just wanted to ask you if you can summarize in however many sentences you would like, what is the most important thing for those who are suffering with addiction to know as they navigate this? Uh, not just in terms of uh, seeking help, but also going to treatment centers, going to family members and asking for that type of support. The, the shortest way that I can sum it up for me is hope. Um, you know, that there is hope out there that it doesn't have to be the way that it feels, you know, that there are resources. There are so many wonderful people that I've met, you know, through this experience and, you know, through my current career that there's so many people like you who are here every day trying to help and make a difference and get the word out there. Um, so that would be my biggest, you know, my biggest thing. And that's what really more than anything made me want to get my story out there and, you know, do something in terms of my career and my everyday life is to try to provide a little bit of hope for people like me that, you know, have felt so incredibly hopeless. So I thank, you know, both of you for everything that you're doing. I think continuing to shine a light on it and focus on, you know, education, research, and advocacy, you know, to continue to bring this into this quote unquote medical mainstream 
you know, and look at it as a disease like any other um, goes a long way in taking away some of that stigma and allows people to look for help in a way that they don't have to feel the shame that they currently feel. So there's hope out there. That would be my, my message. And Dr. Elias, the next question is for you. You've done a lot of research with opioid misuse prevention, specifically revolving around surgery. And with this foundation, we're now starting to educate people who may be suffering with addiction. So as a surgeon, as a practitioner, uh, how do you approach the topic of addiction with patients specifically who could be at risk for that? Yeah, so um, a couple of things to, to, to mention. So for, for the first thing is just awareness uh, of the problem at every level. So as mentioned, the public needs to be aware, the prescribers need to be aware, the the or the industries that inter, interface with us, be it insurance companies or pharma, pharmaceutical industries, need to be aware. And then government, who who provides policies and laws around, needs to be aware. And the more we're in tune with that issue, the more that we can we can we can we can um, deal with the problem. The second thing is uh, recognizing this problem, the opioid crisis, opioid epidemic, substance abuse, as as a as a medical condition that we can treat objectively and medically. And not and move away from the stigma um, of of this as a personal fallacy or, or personal weakness or what have you. And the third thing, finally, is is how, how can we collaborate on this issue? And I, and as as Matt will tell you, you know, politics is, is can be very difficult, and there's a lot of people fighting and for their interests and their concerns. I find that this is an area where there's a lot of common ground, where there's a where there's a lot of room for bipartisanship and and less and less need to be partisan over. Um, so where we can we can bring all the relative relevant parties together, the public's, you know, um, compliance with laws that are meant to protect them, supporting, you know, um, researchers and scientific uh, organizations like us and others who are doing work around this. Um, supporting the treatment centers like where Harry works that need the funding as well as us to, to, to do the work that they do. And, and then for, the, for our, our officials at the government level to recognize these and to know, know where to deliver the funds where they're needed. There's a lot of collaborative space to impart positive change here. And finally, Matt, just to add to that, you've done a tremendous amount of work that we talked about before on introducing and supporting bills. Uh, could you outline to us for those who are, you know, in the legislative process, why it is so important to further funding for these treatment centers and to provide pathways. You talked about insurance and stuff like that. So why is it important for us to allow people who may not be able to afford it or even people who can't afford it to have those treatment centers available and to pass legislation for those people? I think for too long, uh, people have not only suffered from, from the stigma and shame of addiction, but also just the kind of a basal understanding that uh, recovery is out of reach for me, um, that it's expensive to get to a program, to stay within a program, it's gonna be expensive. It's probably not gonna be insured um, or if I'm on Medicaid, there's probably not gonna be resources or beds or clinicians available. Um, to take that, that quotient out of it, uh, we, we in government have a role to play. When you see an epidemic killing more than 100 people a day, every single day, seven days a week, government has a role to play uh, to interrupt that uh, death toll. Uh, so that's where I think we have the power to argue for resources like we're, we're fighting for in this COVID package. 
uh, find it in other places too. Um, and to your point, Dr. Ilias, this is a place we can work in a bipartisan way. The working group I'm on with Representative uh, Trone and others, it's Democrats, it's Republicans who have personal experience and that has driven them to the table. Uh, so the politics can be drained out of it. Uh, but I, I think, um, you know, in the new, new Congress, uh, in the new Congress, which we'll, we will be sworn in on January the 3rd, I think we're going to, and I hope armed with the resources out of this uh, CARES package at the very end of this year, we're going to be able to continue to educate folks that we have to get addiction and addiction services prevention and everything else into our mainstream thinking about medication or, or medicine uh, and healthcare. It can't be this side island of shame. It needs to be in the mainstream. So I applaud insurers and providers who get it uh, and who have uh, taken that curtain down around it. Um, I, and I'll go back to what Harry said. It's, it's um, in reading Harry's part of the book, I had no idea how hopeless he felt, how powerless he felt over addiction, that he had resigned himself that he probably wouldn't make it to 25. I had no idea. You can't imagine what someone is struggling with until they actually tell you about it. And of course, that sadly is a common experience uh, for uh, those who are in the throes of uh, addiction. If we can break through by way of resources, collaboration, uh, you know, with nonprofits, with docs, with research, uh, with government, uh, with treatment, um, and tell people, actually, there is hope. You can survive this disease. And here's some of the ways we're going to help you do it uh, in a, you know, a public-private uh, set of partnerships. Um, that's, that's what I hope, because the worst feeling is when I look into either an addict's eyes or a parent of somebody who's struggling and that hopelessness begins to seep in. Uh, we got to break that. And I think we had the chance. Well, it, it really is an incredible story. Um, and thank you so much for, for telling that story and making that story public. And if I can just add, I, I really want to say thank you to both of you because you've done a lot, not just for clinicians and not just for those suffering with addiction, but for research and for education um, for everyone. And I thank you from the medical student perspective. I thank you from the clinician perspective. And I thank you from the Rothman perspective. The foundation has, uh, the foundation really works to cultivate these relationships to promote this type of education because it's important. And all of us are here for one objective. We're so incredibly excited and happy to have you guys on our side. So thank you so much. Let's keep up the work. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Harry. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If I could just have one minute of your time, I'd like to let you know of the sponsor of the podcast, the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This foundation is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. It's a wonderful foundation dedicated to providing resources and insight into the opioid epidemic, as well as who it affects and how we're addressing the issue. The objectives of the organization are threefold. The first is to raise awareness in the lay and medical communities of the risks and benefits of safe opioid use. The second is to educate patients, physicians, and policymakers on safe opioid use after injuries and surgeries. 
and the third is to support research and educational efforts in improving and innovating pain management strategies that can result in decreased opioid use and advance alternatives to opioids. If this sounds like something you would be interested in supporting, please visit rothmanopioid.org and see the tab to donate. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your support.